It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Roy Cleveland Sullivan was a U.S. Park Ranger in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Between 1942 and 1977, Sullivan was struck by lightning on seven, seven different occasions, incredibly surviving all of them. For this reason, he gained the nickname the Human Lightning Rod. After his wife was struck by lightning while he was helping her hang out laundry, she also survived, people began to avoid him thinking he might be bad luck and they might get zapped. Sullivan is recognized by the Guinness World Records as having survived more lightning strikes than any other human being. According to the BBC, the odds of being struck by lightning are about 1 in 300,000. With 24,000 people struck and killed by lightning each year, the chances of being hit by lightning seven times and surviving are absolutely astounding. You know, Pastor Ross, this just amazed me. And I think they may have seen at one point, he showed a picture of Roy. He had his, his park ranger hat and a, a burn spot on top. Uh, one time, after being struck several times by lightning, he saw a storm came into the hills, and he drove out of the mountains, tried to outrun the storm. When he thought he was a safe distance, he jumped out of his truck to look, and lightning hit him again. And he used to think, is God mad at me? But then he thought, well, maybe God's saving me because he's got something left for me to do. Right. What are the chances of being of surviving just one lightning strike, let alone seven? So <laughs> just amazing how, um, yeah, you go through something like that. I know a sailor that was struck twice and mm. survived. Wow. And that's, that's very, very unusual. But, uh, it, you know, it makes me think about when you think about fire coming down from heaven. Uh, the Bible often calls it fire, like one of the plagues of Egypt. It says fire uh, came down. It was usually lightning. And when it says fire came down and killed the sons of Aaron, who were, they went into the temple drunk, um, probably lightning. And um, then you read in Revelation 13, verse 13, speaking of the beast power, and this is the second beast in Revelation chapter 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So here you have two beasts, Pastor Doug, in chapter 13. The first beast we've identified, uh, if you look at the, the various clues given in the verse, it's very clear that the first beast of Revelation is really the papal power. The second beast, however, is described as coming up from the earth, two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It's really describing the United States. And how's the United States as the world's superpower going to get everyone in the world to eventually acknowledge or receive the mark of the beast? Well, mm -hmm. one of the ways is fire coming down from heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Bible, fire coming down from heaven, as you said, it's a, it could be judgment. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But it can also be uh, God's approval of symbolizing the Holy Spirit. For example, the fire that came down and consumed the sacrifice of Elijah on Mount Carmel. You have fire coming down from heaven, resting on the heads of the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost. So here you have this, this power described in Revelation 13 that brings fire down from heaven. It's almost a counterfeit revival that takes place that galvanizes the world to give their support to the first beast power of Revelation 13. Yeah, it's like an imitation of the great miracle of Elijah where they're trying to decide who is the real God. Mm -hmm. They say, well, I'm going to ultimately prove the real God is the God that answers by fire. Well, the beast is going to play off that in the last days and try and say, well, we're the real power because, look, we can bring fire down. Right. Well, we have a study guide that talks about the United States in Bible prophecy, and we will send this out to anyone for free. All you'll have to do is just call and ask. The number to call is 800-835-6747, and you can ask for free offer number 181, or just ask by name, the United States in Bible Prophecy. You know, Pastor Doug, we have a magazine. In addition to the study guide that we have, we also have a, a magazine called the United States in Prophecy, and it's one of our, our more popular magazines. People call, and they want it, and they want to share it with others, because look at what's happening in the world today, the leadership role that the United States is playing. How does that fit into Bible prophecy? Well, the study guide goes into that in detail. So again, we want to encourage you to call for that, 800-835-6747. And again, just ask for the study guide called the United States or the USA in Bible prophecy. If you have a Bible question, our phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. That's 800-463-7297. We want to greet those who are listening on satellite radio, also on land-based radio stations, and also those who are watching on Amazing Facts TV. I know we have a number of folks also joining us on Good News TV, as well as on the internet, social media. So welcome. Thank you for being a part of the program. Well, Pastor Doug, before we go to the phone lines, let's start with a word of prayer. Amen. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study the Bible. And Lord, we ask your blessing. We ask your blessing as we open up your book, that your spirit would guide us. Be with those who are listening, wherever they might be, in their car or at home. And Lord, lead us into a clearer understanding of the Bible. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think we're ready to go to the phone lines, Pastor Doug. Our first caller this evening is Anthony, listening in New York. Anthony, welcome to the program. Hello. Good evening, pastors. Evening. Thanks. My wife and I, we actually had a question where we wanted to know, um, why did God wait seven days after he closed the door of the ark before he started the flood? And then we asked this because we know that God has a purpose for everything, and we know that seven is a significant number. So um, we just wanted to know if there was something behind that. And then also, is there a connection you know, to you know, the last days, probation closing in the last days as well? Yeah, very good question. So there's evidently, there's seven days after God has known the animals come in the ark, and it tells us that the Lord shut the door. And whether seven complete days had gone by, or at the beginning of the seventh day anyway, which I think is more likely, uh, just because it was after six days of marching around Jericho on the seventh day, on the seventh time, then the city fell. And this is sort of similar, you know, the... Um, um, the deliverance came for Noah and his family. You might say they were lifted up above the world at that point. The rain began to fall on the seventh day. For one thing, uh, sometimes during times of delay, God is testing the faithfulness of his people. You know, when the parable of the ten virgins, it says, and while the bridegroom tarried, and during that time, 
their Holy Spirit is, uh, you know, they're, they're living on reserve, so to speak. Um, so God sometimes, he makes an entrance, you might say, and he, he has us wait in our, and, and we're tested. Uh, Moses delayed coming down the mountain, and it was a time of testing for the children of Israel. Uh, Samuel told Saul, wait for me, and after seven days I'll come. But it seems like he was a little late, and then he did come. But it was a time of testing, and Saul actually failed that test. So you got any thoughts, Pastor Ross? Why the seven days? Definitely time of testing. You know, you mentioned something. They were in the ark. Uh, probation closes. You have the six days. On the seventh day, it appears the, the rain begins to come and the flood comes. They lift it up. The earth is inhabited for about 6,000 years. Mm -hmm. And then you have the second coming of Christ. And the righteous are lifted up and their deliverance comes. But at the same time, you have judgment coming upon the wicked that we could have destroyed at Great the brightness of Christ coming. So you see a parallel in, matter of fact, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the Son of Man is revealed. But then if you try and parallel that with uh, the close of probation at the end of time, uh, according to Revelation, it's not that the uh, plagues will come in, because uh, after probation closes, then you have the seven last plagues. They don't occur in seven literal days. They are seven literal plagues. But the Bible seems to indicate that the plagues will come in one year because one prophetic day is equal to one literal year and it says her plague shall come in one day. Mm -hmm. So after probation closes, you have about a year and then the second coming of Christ. Yeah, uh, the world I don't think would survive very long um, if, uh, <laughs> if you had seven years mm -hmm. of those seven last plagues when you look at them. Well, hope that helps a little bit, Anthony. Thank you for your question and uh, we appreciate it. Next caller that we have is Fred listening from um, Connecticut. Fred, welcome to the program. Uh, yes. Uh, when it comes to fasting, is that optional or mandatory? A good question. Um, now, we are not saved by our works. But, uh, you know, if you say, is it mandatory to pray? I think we would agree that all believers will pray because even receiving Christ requires a prayer. Uh, speaking of fasting, Jesus said we shouldn't fast like the hypocrites. But he said, when you fast, and I don't know if you have that reference here. Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 17. Yeah. So Jesus didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. Cause, and then another time Jesus told the apostles in Mark chapter 9, speaking of a father that wanted his son delivered from a demon. And the disciples said, why couldn't we cast the demon out? Jesus said, this kind does not come forth except by prayer and fasting. And then... Um, you, you've got uh, a number of examples in the Bible where one time John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and said, how come your master, uh, you guys aren't fasting like John the Baptist's disciples? And Jesus said, the children of the bridegroom do not fast while the bridegroom is with them. I mean, that's obviously a time of celebration. But the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So Jesus said, you know, when I ascend to heaven, there'll be times for fasting and prayer. And I think especially as we see uh, if issues taking place in the world, our faith is going to be tried and tested. And uh, we want to, at that point, or even now, probably in preparation, we want to have that full commitment and focus on Christ. And fasting is an important part of that. Not that it earns merit with God, but it does help to focus our mind on something else than just yeah. temporal things. Yeah, and I think it's healthy for our souls to sometimes deny our bodies. It, mm -hmm. It's good discipline. So hey, hope that helps a little bit. Appreciate your question, Fred. We've got uh, Brittany listening in California. Brittany, welcome to the program. Hey. <laughs> Hi, thanks for calling. Yeah, sure. My question was, 
How is a Christian supposed to deal with a temptation to leave the church because of secular concerts? Okay, so you're, you're uh, I guess, concerned because the, the church, it seems like they're, they're bringing in worldly music and you're, you're just discouraged by that because you're wanting more holiness and, and reverence in the church? Is that what you're saying? Well, it isn't, it isn't that. I have performances through, through the community college I'm attending, and one of them happens to be on a Sunday, and I'm wondering if that's part of the idea of the temptation I'm dealing with to leave the church because of the performance I have that happens to be on a Sunday. Oh, I see. So, I, I see. I think I understand that... Um... You're, you see a, a secular concert, it could be getting away with your regular worship. Is that what you're asking? I couldn't hear your answer. I'm sorry, Brittany. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's a, a good question, but um, we should always seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, uh, you know, if we're asked to do something, just like Nebuchadnezzar said, we're having a special program Everybody's going to bow down to my statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we cannot break the commandments of God to keep the commandments of men. And so uh, I, I think that you should always follow your convictions about what the Word of God is. Um, you know, we actually have a lesson that you know, you're talking about um, reverence on Sunday and going to church. We've got a lesson that talks about how do you keep the Sabbath holy. And we'll be happy to send you that if you'd like a free copy. Just uh, go to the resource. If you'd like to receive that, again, you can just call and ask. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And Pastor Doug, I'm thinking of the exact wording of that. Is it how to keep the Sabbath holy or is it a forgotten day in history? No, that we have a booklet. We have one yeah, specific, a, okay. Yeah. You can just call and ask for that and we'll send it to you. How to keep the Sabbath holy. Again, the number is 800-835-6747. All right, thank you for your call, Brittany. We've got Ryan listening in California. Ryan, welcome to the program. Hey, pastors. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, my question is uh, actually on Luke 7. I believe it's also referenced in Matthew as well. Okay. Um, I'm wondering why uh, John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he's the expected one, even though at that point he's already baptized Jesus and even declared that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, good. So John the Baptist, God revealed through the Holy Spirit, uh, and you read this in the Gospel of John, the Lord told him that the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descending, he's the one. And John knew, he said, you come to me. John said to Jesus, you come to me for baptism, you should be baptizing me. And G John declared on two occasions, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John said, he must increase, I must decrease. But then John was thrown in jail, and even John had different expectations of the ministry of Jesus. He thought that Jesus would use his supernatural power to do something, to overthrow the Roman oppression, or just he had some different expectations. And when Jesus just continued to keep his head down and he was meek and lowly and he would heal and feed, and, and he thought, are, are you the one? Or did I misunderstand? Are you just a great prophet or are you the Messiah? And keep in mind, John is in prison. He's discouraged, he's alone. And he's wondering why Jesus is doing nothing to deliver him. He thinks, you know, maybe he'll use his power to rescue me somehow. So I think he was just struggling with in, in his faith 
And he sent his messengers to say, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus didn't answer him right away. He had the messengers stand around and watch as he cast out devils. And well, you can read it here in uh, Luke 7, verse 22. Jesus said, go tell John the things that you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he gives him a little encouragement. He says, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. And of course, the ministry of Christ that he describes here goes along with what the uh, prophet Isaiah says about the Messiah, that he would uh, open the eyes of the blind and the lame would leap and, and that they would uh, have the gospel. So um, John understood, yes, he, he is the one. And of course, after the disciples of John were there and they leave, then Jesus turns to those who were with him and he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see somebody dressed in fine apparel? And then he talks about John and he says, of all of them born unto woman, there's not a risen one greater than John the Baptist. So clearly Jesus acknowledged uh, the mission of John and uh, the faith of John. And I think the testimony that came back to John from his disciples, uh, that settled the faith of John, that strengthened him to face the final trial, which was his martyrdom for Christ. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Ryan. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Very good question. Next caller that we have, we've got uh, Fanduka listening in Canada. Is it Fancud? How do you say your name? It's Facundo. Facundo, yes. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good to talk to you guys. Um, my question today is on uh, Acts 12, verse 4. And um, I found it a little confusing. It was just interesting because I, I tend to reference other uh, versions of the Bible to see um, full understanding, and I noticed that in the uh, King James Version, um, it refers to Easter, as every other version refers to the day after Passover. So I was curious as to what you guys think as to why they used Easter instead of Passover, given that Easter was, there was no such thing as Easter. Right. Well, because they were translating, the King James translators were translating the Bible into current contemporary English, and in contemporary English, they all called the Passover season Easter. They, they saw them as synonymous. And so, uh, you know, of course, the, the word, the history for the word Easter is drawn from Ishtar because uh, there was also a, a spring festival during that time that came from pagan mythology. But that was the word that they used for that time of year, the, the Paschal celebration. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just... Yeah, but there's English. no doubt in the original Greek uh, that it's yeah. talking about the Passover. Yeah. And that's why some of the, even the New King James Version actually refers to the uh, use of the word Passover, right. not the word Easter. And I guess uh, my, my follow-up to that would be then, is Easter something that uh, we as a church should celebrate? I guess I was looking into it and I, I saw that it was in the Council of Nicaea, I believe, uh, with Constantine. And I'm just wondering if it's, uh, something that the church should celebrate, or if it's uh, like you guys are saying, it's uh, it's got its roots roots in, in paganism or some sort of pagan holiday. All right, good question. Let's talk about that. Um, Easter, the the term Easter is drawn from a springtime festival because everything was you know bursting in the northern hemisphere at springtime. Everything's bursting forth with new life, and that's why you know they they had bunnies and they got eggs and everything that kind of had to do with, and lilies, you know, uh, they had to do with um, new life, because a lot of these pagan religions, they saw it as sort of as a fertility festival. 
Well, uh, Constantine made the most of that, and they sort of melded what the Christians recognized as the, the Passover with the resurrection of Christ, and they were trying to win some of them. They said, well, you know, let's just celebrate these things together and call it the resurrection. Now, that said, there's nothing wrong with, there's no commandment to, let me back up, there's no commandment for us to make a holiday of the Passover or the resurrection, a new Christian holiday. But uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with Christians remembering and celebrating the resurrection. So there's no moral dilemma there. I would say the same thing I say about uh, Christmas when if you're going to celebrate the time of Jesus first coming, emphasize what the scripture says about it. You don't emphasize Santa Claus and and, uh, you know, the tree or or the Yule log or any of the traditions that have grown up around it. You celebrate what the biblical truth is. And if we're going to celebrate the. Uh, Passover season and the resurrection celebrate the biblical truth connected with that there's nothing wrong with that there's no command to do it but what's that Paul saying Romans if you're going to recognize the day do it to the Lord if you're not going to do it don't do it okay good answer next caller that we have is E. Frank listening from New York E. Frank welcome to the program yes uh, good evening Pastor Doug and Pastor Ross um, I have a question for you gent- for both of you this evening I did uh, understand what Brittany said before. It's uh, very understandable what she was asking. Uh, but w- what I'm trying to ask tonight is, um, does it appear anywhere in the New Testament, any form, as the call screen had told me, he used the word resource, not record, any resources that indicate that there was uh, any form of evidence that indicated the, the events that led up to the crucifixion, the day that Jesus died, is there any verse or scripture in the entire New Testament that indicates that the Roman uh, centurions no, made any notations of other things that occurred within that time period, that specific day in uh, the Mount of Olives? I'm just curious. All right, so if I understand correctly, you're asking if uh, there's other records in the New Testament of events that happened on the day of the crucifixion. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, Well, of course, you know, it tells us about the trial of Christ, and it says that after they put his robe back on him, they led him forth to be crucified. And so it does say that, and of course it tells us that uh, as they were crucifying him along with the other two thieves, uh, the... uh, um, they call them male factors, I think. Uh, he prayed for the forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they were doing. And uh, so there's several New Testament references to that. It does talk about uh, that the, the sky grew dark. Uh, it tells us that uh, there was an earthquake that day. Now, if you want some extra biblical history, there are, I think I can, off the top of my head, think about three different references that are even outside the Bible. One would be from Flavius Josephus, who talked about G- Jesus, and he specifically mentions that Pilate crucified him. And then there are some uh, Romans that wrote about it. They were actually anti-Christian. They, they mock Christianity, and um, one of them is Pliny, and then the other one was, I think it's Tacitus Tass- Tass- uh, that talked about the, uh, the Christian sect and that their leader was crucified, and they claimed that he was raised. So... I hope that answers your your question, E. Frank, but uh, that's what we got in the Bible. Yeah, and then also just to add to that a little bit, specifically the Bible does tell us that Christ died on the day of preparation or the preparation day. We know that to be Friday, 
We also know it was a Passover. It was a high Sabbath that next day. So um, there are some historical uh, accounts in the Bible that tell us a little bit about what was happening in Israel at that time. They were preparing for the Sabbath. It was also going to be the Passover. And it, it all, when you look at the lunar cycle, it all fits in with, I think, 31 AD. The Passover during 31 AD would be the time of the crucifixion. All right, thanks. Next caller that we have is Jesus, listening from Florida. Jesus, welcome to the program. Hey, pastors. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Okay, so my question had to do around the verse over in Genesis, Genesis 6, uh, specifically Genesis 6-2. I remember hearing some, I guess you could say some references from another pastor, uh, Pastor Stephen Bohr, and he was talking about the fact that um, there that the sons of God was actually not angels and it was the line of Seth. I wanted to see if you guys had any um, biblical evidence and and or resources that I could go and check out that would give me more information on like, you know, why is this becoming such a big thing? I guess you could say, like, how do I, how can I find like the truth? I guess you could say. Yeah, very good. I'm, well, first of all, let me tell you right out of the, right out of the box that uh, we wrote a book on this because so many people had questions on it. And it's, there's a lot of confusion. Many people start reading their Bibles in January and it, we start getting calls early in January about Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God uh, married the daughters of men. Then it says they had these giants, and people say, who are the sons of God marrying the daughters of men? And we've heard everything from they're fallen angels, they're aliens, they're demons, and, and uh, it's really not that complicated. If, and we'll give you the book. The book is called Aliens or Adopted, Who Are the Sons of God? And if, uh, so just for one thing, look at the book. We have lots of references in the book. But uh, it's very clear that um, you read in First John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called sons of God. Isaiah talks about believers as being sons and daughters of God. And um, uh, there is a place where it talks about the angels when all the sons of God shouted for joy. And it, it's maybe talking about angels, but it's sort of a broad term. But in the time of Adam and Eve, when Cain walked away from the Lord, marked, and he uh, built a city, and he was just living in rebellion to God, and Seth, uh, he was faithful, and the, the line of Jesus comes through Seth. They were called sons of God. They were offering sacrifice. They believed in the Lord. Um, but when they began to intermarry, that's when the wickedness filled the earth. God did not want the sons of God, the children of Seth, intermarrying with the daughters of Cain, just like he did not want Samson going to the Philistines. He did not want Solomon taking many wives. That resulted in the great apostasy. As for that free book called um, Aliens Are Adopted, Who Are the Sons of God? Don't go away, friends. We're going to be back right after this break with more questions. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Doug Batchelor was the teenage son of a millionaire father and show business mother, yet he was living in a cave. He had everything money could buy, everything but happiness. But all of the fun and excitement he enjoyed left his life out of control. His search eventually led him to a cave above Palm Springs that became his home. While Doug scavenged for food in garbage bins, his father owned a yacht, a Learjet, and an airline. But in his cave home, he discovered a dust-covered Bible. 
As he began to read, he soon learned of his true purpose in life. The Richest Caveman is the extraordinary true story of Doug Batchelor that tells how a rebellious teenager who once lived in a cave became a tremendous soul winner for Jesus Christ. It's a thrilling testimony of the transforming power of God's Word. To order your copy of The Richest Caveman, call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshiped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. Would you like to know God's plan for our troubled world and solutions for your life's challenges? Beautifully redesigned and updated, Amazing Facts 27 Bible Study Guides provide straightforward Bible-based answers that are enlightening, encouraging, and easy to understand, giving you real relevant Bible answers to questions like, how can I have healthier relationships? When will Jesus come? And much more. Order yours today by visiting afbookstore.com or by calling 800-538-7275. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends. This is Bible Answers Live, and if you have joined us and tuned in along the way, this is a live international interactive Bible study, and you are invited to call in with your Bible questions. If you have a question, just give us a call at 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. And we're also streaming this on the Amazing Facts Facebook page, as well as on uh, Good News Network and the uh, Doug Batchelor Facebook page. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is Jean Ross, and we've got uh, Leah listening from Colorado. Leah, welcome to the program. Good evening, pastors. Evening. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for taking my call. How can we help you tonight? Uh, my question for you guys this evening is, uh, will we see the wicked thrown into the lake of fire from within the New Jerusalem? Well, it, it seems like we will. Um, it, there's a verse in Psalm 91 that says, Only with your eyes will you see and behold the punishment of the wicked. Um, and so... Yeah, sometimes we actually see vengeance come on the wicked in this life. Uh, in the end there, I think that, um, you know, you have witnesses in a judgment, and the witnesses often behold the sentencing. I suppose if someone wants to turn away, we'll be free. But it's going to happen there in the presence. Yeah, Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, talking about the wicked. They surround the new Jerusalem. It says, they went up on the breadth of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. 
And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they'll be tormented. So there you have the wicked surrounding the camp, surrounding the New Jerusalem, and fire coming, devouring them. Yeah, and it's in Psalm 91, verse 8, Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. So it certainly, it's not that God's shielding us from it, it doesn't seem. Um, and there'll be people out there that have uh, uh, been very hard on God's people, and there'll be some recompense in that. Not that anyone would uh, take pleasure in it, but we're seeing justice fulfilled. All right, we've got uh, Damon listening from Oklahoma. Damon, welcome to the program. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Pastor, for having me. Yeah. My question was about the second coming of Jesus. Um, the Bible says that every eye will see him coming in the clouds, but it also says that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. So I was wondering, could you give a better explanation on how that might work if every eye will see him, but the wicked are destroyed by, by when he comes. Well, I, I don't think there's a conflict. I think that the way I picture it anyway is that when the Lord comes, uh, the wicked see him coming, and then it talks about they flee from his presence. Uh, you read in Revelation, it says, they call for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the presence of the Lord. And ultimately, as the Lord approaches and gets closer, I think they're destroyed by that brilliance of his coming. I mean, I can see a fire far away and I see it very clearly, but as the fire gets closer, you know, it, you start to suffer the effects of it. Yeah, Revelation chapter six talks about the wicked turning to the rocks and mountains and saying, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So they do see, at least for a period of time, they get to see Jesus coming. And like you say, as he comes closer, it seems as though the glory of Christ is what eventually destroys the wicked ultimately consumes them. And we got Matthew listening in Michigan. Matthew, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi. How's it going? Good. My, uh, my question is in First uh, Samuel 25, 43. Um, and that's when David marries both, uh, takes both of them as wives. At, um, is, this, is there any symbolic meaning be behind that in taking both of them? When he married uh, Abigail and he took Ahinoam of Jezreel, right? I don't. I'm. I don't want to make something out of nothing, but to me, it sounds kind of like is this uh, symbolizing uh, salvation to both like the Jews and Gentiles, or you know, that's I'm looking at this right now with fresh eyes, just because I never have thought of that uh, until you asked the question. I'm sure there's meaning here that I may not see on the surface. Uh, also, just looking at the scripture as it's written. It wasn't uncommon then for people that had the resources to take more than one wife. And sometimes their marriage would uh, develop into an alliance. Now, for one thing, um, Nabal had died. Nabal was an extremely wealthy man, owned a lot of property. He owned a lot of goods. He died. I think it, the property then fell to Abigail. There's no record that she had any children. And uh, David, in marrying her, he ended up getting all that was Nabal's. And I think he married um, Ahinoam of Jezreel, um, and they both became his wives. And it talks about um, David's original wife, Michael, that had been given by King Saul, had been taken away from him and given to someone else by the king. So, I, you know, they, they practiced polygamy, which was not God's plan. And David started going down that road, as did, it tells us that not only did Saul have a wife, it said later he had concubines. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so a lot of the kings back then, that was the custom. And of course, David didn't stop with just two wives. He ended up with, I think, 10 wives and some concubines as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Matthew. We've got uh, Joe listening in Florida. Joe, welcome to the program. How you doing, Pastor? First of all, I, first of all, I appreciate both of y'all. Yeah, thanks for calling. Program. Um, okay, so let me give you a quick foundation. The reason I'm asking this question is because I've always felt that it was taught that in God's eyes, sin is sin, okay? So let's just say a, hetero, uh, a homosexual says he's a Christian. And I heard this from a pastor, and I thought, that just don't sound right, because in Hebrews it says, I'll forgive your sins, your iniquities, I'll remember the more which makes me think, you know, makes me know that our past and future sins are forgiven as a Christian person. So if a homosexual stays a homosexual and he calls himself a Christian, he dies, will he go to hell or will he go to heaven? Uh, Pastor Ross, rather than our commenting, uh, the verse you find there in, I believe it's in Corinthians, where it said, uh, do not be deceived. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 where it says, do not be deceived that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. It says it twice. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And then the list continues. But it does end. It talks about thieves, covetousness, drunkenness, revelries. And then verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus. So in the church, there were some people that had some um, pretty rough reputations or backgrounds, but they came to Christ, they repented of their sins, and yet Paul says, you're part of the family of God. But there is a repentance involved. They didn't just continue in their sin. Yeah, and just also notice in that verse, he says, uh, specifically, he says, adulterers, which would be heterosexual uh, immorality, and then he says homosexuals, and that's homosexual immorality. If a person's practicing immorality, the Bible calls it a sin and you need to repent from and turn from your sins. Now, there are some people that are tempted with those tendencies, but whatever your tendency of temptation is, there's some things that tempt you out there I have actually no interest in, and you may have no interest in the things that trouble me. But whatever your temptation is, we can do all things through Christ. God wants us to turn away. Jesus calls us to be overcomers and live holy lives. You know, absolutely, Pastor Doug. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Now we know sometimes there's a struggle involved and the greatest battle that we have to fight is the surrender of self. But we need to make that commitment daily. As the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. You know, we have a book that deals with all kinds of temptations because the principles are relevant for every kind of temptation. It's called Tips for Resisting Temptation whether that's eating too much dessert or whether it's drunkenness or smoking or some sexual addiction, the Bible gives us ways in which we can resist. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. All you have to do is call the number 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Tips for Resisting Temptation. Some good practical Bible principles that you'd find a blessing. Uh, Next caller that we have is uh, Robert listening from Washington. Robert, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor Ross. Hi, Pastor Bachelor. Hi, Robert. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. As you can see, it's a pretty simple question. I was wondering if uh, Moses, Moses had uh, two wives uh, simultaneously. You know, there's no, uh, there's no evidence, no hard evidence that he did. 
it, it appears, of course, first Moses marries Zipporah. She is the, uh, I think, the eldest daughter of Jethro. And later talks about um, Zephora and Moses going to uh, Egypt together, but she turns back into the wilderness, and then he is reunited with her father-in-law is there, so forth. Uh, then by the time you get to the book of Numbers, it tells us that Aaron and Miriam were upset because of the Ethiopian that Moses had married. Now, we don't know if Zephora died and he remarried, and they're bothered by that, or if it's also calling Zephora, who is a Midianite, an Ethiopian because Ethiopia was a very broad term that was used not for the borders of the country today, but Ethiopia could have been anyone in uh, the, the northern part of Africa, and the Midianites lived just across the Red Sea from that. So it, we don't know if it's saying they were still upset about him marrying Zephora, or if she had died and he remarried. You can't tell from the text exactly what's going on there. All right. So I don't. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's nothing the that you it ne never tells us about Moses having two wives at the same time that's mentioned in the Bible. All right. Thank you for your call, Robert. Uh, next caller that we have. Let's see. We've got um, Michael listening in Texas. Michael, welcome to the program. Uh, uh, hello, uh, hello, Pastor Doug and uh, Pastor Ross. Uh, I, I hope I'm saying this right. Uh, I, I have a question for First Corinthians. Uh, 14, 34, and 35 about uh, Peter uh, saying that women should be quiet, be silent in church, and I'm just trying to understand that. Good. All right, let me read it for everyone who's uh, listening. We've got a lot of folks, of course, they're driving or working. And it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, Let your women keep silent in the church, for they're not permitted to speak, but they're to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or what was it that it reached? If anyone thinks himself a, a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are there, the commandments of the Lord. So um, is this a, a uniform statement that a woman is never to speak in church? Or was he talking about a specific situation? Well, let's step back. And when you find a difficult verse like this, you've got to compare it with other scripture, compare scripture with scripture. Do we have other examples of women that are with God's approval speaking in church? Well, when Jesus was born, it talks about Anna, the prophetess that uh, came and she um, was speaking there in the church uh, after Simon. And uh, you've got a number of women in the Bible that were called prophets. And you've got uh, Hannah, who is a, praying in the church and when she speaks to Eli you've got um, Huldah you've got Deborah um, so you've got and then you've got the daughters of Philip in the New Testament it says he had four daughters that did prophesy then it tells us that um, in the New Testament you have uh, Aquila and Priscilla husband wife team that studied with Apollos I think it's hard to imagine that none of those women were ever able to open their mouths and speak in church Paul writes a lot to the Corinthian church because their services were very much out of order. Now, just you, you kind of got to get the picture. Men and women did not always sit with each other in these uh, early Christian churches, just like in the Jewish churches. They adopted that. And women were probably calling over to their husbands and telling their husbands what Paul really meant or what the preacher meant or instructing them. And it was kind of humbling for the husbands to have their wives teaching them or chastising them. or There was some disruption going on 
And Paul said, let them keep silent. If, if they want to ask a question, ask at home. So I think he's talking about a, a specific issue there. And there were also a number of different cultures and different languages that you read about that was present in the church in Corinth. Yeah. Not only does Paul address this, but he also says when somebody speaks, make sure that they uh, speak in a language that people can understand. Otherwise, you need to get a translation and you do it one at a time. There needs to be order in the church. So I think this, this admonition from Paul was to deal with the specific situation that was occurring in that church. It talks in 1 Corinthians 14 and uh, uh, chapter, yeah, 14 says that, uh, you know, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that I might instruct others in 10,000 in an unknown tongue. And there's just a lot of jammering and jabbering going on with all those different slave groups in the Roman Empire in Corinth. They came from different countries. And Paul said, look, ask your husbands when you get home, tell the women to be quiet. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've seen some churches that say that now women aren't to speak in church. Well, does that mean a woman can't teach a Sabbath school class or a Sunday school class? Does God not give them those gifts? So, uh, yeah, a difficult verse. All right, thanks for your call. We've got uh, Carol listening in New York. Carol, welcome to the program. Yes, hi. Good evening, Pastor evening. Doug and Pastor Wash. How are you? Blessed, thank you. Amen, amen. I was reading um, the book of uh, Judges. Um, I had finished reading Joshua. And um, now, who ruled Israel after Joshua had died? Because I know judges what what was judges about like were were they judging the people of israel and ruling them at the same time that's a great question now by the time of samuel the people said we want to be like the other nations give us a king and god said i've been your king and, and uh, you know why are you asking for king now the, the lord was their leader he would guide them through prophets and he would speak through judges. And sometimes the judges were, yeah, they would judge difficult cases. Um, Bible says Samson was a judge, but it never gives an account of him sitting down at the you know, judge's bench, but he became a leader among the people. I think within the uh, divisions within Israel, they would be designated uh, judges where the local people would bring their concerns and they would look at the law of Moses that had been given, and they would make a judgment based on these various cases. And for a long time, that seemed to work, as you said, up until the time of, of Samuel. And then they wanted a king to judge over them, and then the, the hard cases would go all the way up to the king, and he would make the final decision. Right. But there was a period of time during the judges. There was a, also, there's an interesting verse talking about that time, Pastor Doug, where it says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So there was apostasy prevalent in the country. Some were worshiping even these pagan deities in the area. So there was some trouble during this time too. Yep. And so as you mentioned, you know, during the time of the judges, they did have Levites and priests in the country and they would probably handle the smaller cases. But, you know, after Moses and Joshua died, they thought, well, who is going to be the Supreme Court if there's differences, you know, and you can't appeal behind, uh, beyond the leader of your tribe. And the different judges, and it talks about Ehud and Deborah and uh, um, Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah, and so there are several of them that were sort of leaders of Israel, more in a military sense than a king, really. All right, thanks for your call. We've got, uh, let's see, Macal listening from Washington. Macal, welcome to the program. Hi, yeah, it's uh, Mikhail. Mikhail, welcome. 
Yeah, my question is kind of to do with the week of creation. Uh, so far, I noticed that in religion, uh, it's becoming a bit of an idea that the each day in the hundred in, in the seven day week uh, was a certain hundred million years, which is not true. I just want to know if you could give me some points to uh, kind of see uh, from the Bible that okay, this is says that it's literal days, not millions of years. Yeah, you know, if you're going to believe the Bible. You need to believe that uh, the world was created in six literal days because Jesus said, if you don't believe Moses, then you don't believe me. And uh, it's very clear. It says the evening and the morning were the first day. Everything in the language is telling us that this is a regular uh, 24-hour day. Talks about the sun and the moon and the, you know, it's the earth's rotating one time on its axis. The other thing is if these are long ages, how can God make the vegetation on the third day and not make the moon or the sun until the fourth day? Now, plants will live a day without the sun, but they're not going to live a thousand years. So you, there's no way it works if you try and say these are great epics that are thousands or millions of years. Um, the Lord made these things in six literal days. And the Bible tells us, even in the Ten Commandments, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and see all that is in them. And that's in the Sabbath command. So, yeah. The Bible says the morning or the evening and the morning was the first day. The evening and the morning was the second day. Well, you're only going to have one morning and one evening in a 24-hour time period. You're not going to have it over thousands of years. That's right. So the Bible's pretty clear. It's, it's one literal day there. Okay, next caller that we have, Ulysses, listening from Arizona. Ulysses, welcome to the program. Hello, pastors. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Uh, thank you. Um, I my question was, um, well, I was I've been a uh, like a uh, like following Christ um, basically since like um, I was like born. Uh, me and my brothers, and sometimes it just feels like each day or like some there's like days where it just feels like it it's like a little repetitive. And I was just wondering if there was like any um bible characters that could help like a young person like me and like many others um to help us like spiritually like grow and so we'd like as some role models maybe yes okay you know in the new testament one that comes to mind pastor ross may think of some is you have timothy paul says to timothy don't let anyone despise your youth you know though you are a young man and he tells timothy flee youthful lusts says you know there's a lot of temptations young people go through especially when they go from being children to adults and uh you know they they're uh, assaulted with all these raging hormones and he tells them you know live a pure life and then you've got samuel samuel starts out very young but he grows up in the temple and he's surrounded with uh you know some dishonesty and bad behavior but he stays faithful to god in spite of that and you've got joseph who was a young man mm -hmm. taken captive to to egypt You've got David, who was a young man when you know he defeated Goliath. You've got Esther, that was a young girl when she was taken to the palace. And then if you really want to go even younger, you've got the little maid that was taking care of Naaman's wife and when Naaman, the leper. So yeah, there's a lot of examples of young people and even children in the Bible who stood up for what was right. That's right, good point. All right, thanks for your call. We've got uh, John listening from uh, Illinois. John, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. Um, I'm going to be doing a I'm going to be doing a study on the Book of James with my coworker, and he is a non-Adventist. Um, he does know my 
my beliefs, but I have been cross-referencing different Bibles to get a better understanding of what's written in James. I was seeing if both of you had any suggestions on how I could lead my first Bible study with a believer and potentially two non-believers. Yeah, and you'll be, and the focus is on the book of James. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes, correct. Yeah, oh, that's a great book, actually. James is, you know, he was uh, the older brother of Jesus, probably older half-brother of Jesus. And uh, he just talks about the basics of the Christian life. I've got a friend, one of the friends we play racquetball with. He's going through a men's Bible study in James, and he's just says, wow, this is eye-opening. Fantastic. Yeah, James talks about, of course, uh, you know, faith without works is dead. He talks about having faith that you live out in your life. He talks about the practicality of Christians in their speech. Be careful what you say. You can do a lot of good or a lot of harm with your words. Uh, yeah, James is just a fantastic book. So I don't know if there's any particular advice. You can do, you know, New King James Version is a great version uh, to study that from. And there's also some great commentaries that one can look at that'll give you some additional historical information about that and help to give you some cross-references for the verses. But to start in James chapter 1, verse 1, and just start reading and, and studying and cross-referencing, it's a, it is a great study. So, yeah, Lord be with you. I think that uh, it'll go well. All right, last caller that we have tonight, we've got uh, Sherry listening from Montana. Sherry, we have just about a minute or so. Just just a question for you. Um, real, i got to make it quick. I know um, my sister was murdered in the year 2000. Her little girl was little, and Friday night, and the girl, her daughter was 25, and she committed suicide. Mm. And I was just wondering, is there still possibilities that she's saved even though she's committed suicide? Okay, that is, that's a good question, and it's a difficult question. Uh, you know, the Bible tells us, first of all, that God looks on the heart. So we don't know, and you gotta be very careful about judging. Uh, I've done the funeral for uh, a young lady that uh, took her life, and uh, she took the pills, and then she regretted it, and she called and asked for help, and you know, you don't know what's going on in their mind. It, we don't know sometimes the struggles and the heartache, uh, and God, he weighs all that, and God is good, and God is just. Uh, that said, if anyone's thinking about suicide, you know, the last thing you wanna do is have the last act of your life, uh, in self-murder, because God says don't kill, and that would include yourself. So you certainly don't want to do that, but I would be careful of saying that uh, anyone who's committed suicide, that there's no hope, because God looks at the tenor of their life and, and the difficulties that they grappled with, and just encourage the family to just know God is good, and God is grieving along with everyone else. Thank you for your question, and uh, for our listening friends, we sort of sign off in two stages here. We are coming back in just about a, a minute we're going to do rapid-fire Bible questions. We're signing off with our friends listening on satellite radio, but if you're listening on any other station, just stay tuned. We're going to come back and take your Internet Bible questions that have come in. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. 
Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bible Answers Live. And we want to thank you for your many uh, Bible questions that you've posted on social media or emailed to Amazing Facts. Pastor Doug, we're going to try and get through as many of these questions as we can in the next couple of minutes. So here's the first one. Is it really possible to keep the Ten Commandments? All right. The answer would be, why would God ask us to do something that we can't do? Wouldn't he be unjust? And if a person is lying, are we going to say, well, no one can really tell the truth? Uh, or, you know, if a person is stealing or what wife would accept a husband saying, I can't really keep that seventh commandment about adultery. Sorry, I know you'll understand. Of course we can. God, Jesus came to save us, not in our sins, but from our sins. And he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yes, you can. Okay, next question that we have. How do we know if we are walking in the spirit? Yeah, well, probably the best way is you look at the example that it gives us in Galatians chapter 5. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Um, do we have that love, that joy, that peace, that goodness, that long-suffering, that faith, that meekness that is described? If we're always you know, losing our temper, if we're thinking and talking selfish thoughts and praying selfish prayers, we're probably not being Spirit-led. And so we should be asking every day for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Lord wants to give that to us more then earthly parents want to give good gifts to their children. Okay, another question that we have. When the body dies, where does the spirit go? And the follow-up part is, what is that spirit? All right. Well, very quickly, if you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it says that, you know, the living know they'll die, the dead don't know anything. But when a person dies, it says the spirit returns to God who gave it. And it's not just a person. It says the spirit of man, beast, it returns to God. That's because the word spirit there is talking about that gift of life, that breath of life returns to God. So the word spirit is often interchangeable in the New and Old Testament with the word breath. And God gives all creatures the breath of life that returns to God. Doesn't mean it's conscious until the resurrection. Okay. Well, here's another one, Pastor Doug. What type of locusts did John the Baptist eat? Well, we hope they were fresh locusts. You wouldn't want to eat stale ones. You know, locust was an insect that was declared clean in the Levitical laws. But uh, there's also a bean that was called locust, and it's similar to the carob pod. If you go to Israel, they call it St. John's bread. We're hoping that he ate the locust bean and not the bugs. But technically, it could have been the grasshoppers. Hey, listening friends, running out of time. But go to the Amazing Facts website, amazingfacts.org. Search the resources and tune in next week.